Hello and welcome to the Curators Salon podcast. I'm Gita Joshi. My guests today are the curators for the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale 2021, Manija Baghiz and Maddie Kessler. Welcome, guys. Thanks for inviting us. We're really excited to be here. Can you tell me how you guys first met? Maddie, I'll let you tell it because I know how much you enjoy this story. Um, we first met in the queue for the ladies' toilets at the Architectural Association. Um, which I think we go back to quite a lot as a first meeting place because of how important firstly toilets are in society, um, but also looking at these kind of privatised public spaces um, around the city and that's actually started to feed into um, our concept for the pavilion. It was a, um, it was a fortuitous meeting, um, although in the immediate kind of moment we didn't really realize that it was going to shape our futures but we became friends ever since then and have collaborated together on various like teaching workshops and summer schools and we kind of always wanted to work on a project together um, but didn't have the opportunity until recently. Is Venice Ben the first project that you're working on together? Yes it's the first kind of um, project that's not a kind of workshop or, or summer school but we um, we actually went to Venice together for the last architecture biennale and it was in November and we were walking around. Um, in the past, we had always talked about wanting to, to kind of enter the competition to curate the pavilion. And um, so we said it again when we were walking around the Biennale. And then when we got back to London in December, they announced the open call, um, which was much earlier than usual. And so we kind of both kind of spoke to each other and decided that we should enter this time around. So yeah, I think after we first met, we taught like a series of sort of summer schools and workshops together over the following few years. And through that kind of evolved um, some similar sort of ideas about the city. But I think what was really interesting was in the meantime, we were both taking sort of very different career trajectories within architecture. Um, and although we were approaching architecture and um, our relationships with the city in very different ways, we sort of had these common threads of what we were interested in. And through those conversations, we're developing these ideas for different briefs for the workshops and um, these summer schools. And I think that kind of built up to us eventually uh, building up this brief for a pavilion. How long did it take you to formulate the pitch then for the British Pavilion? Weirdly, it was quite um, quick. We, yeah. we actually met in January at Maddie's house and we were brainstorming ideas. And um, we taught a summer school in 2015, looking at the pub as a positive example of privatized public space. And both of us really felt like that topic um, was really rich and had so much more in it. And so it was the first idea that we kind of batted back and forth and that was what we settled on because the, the kind of competition question that they asked everyone to respond to was what was the most urgent issue facing British architecture today. And we felt the answer was kind of tackling the, the, the issue of privatized public space that's often framed as this binary where public is good and private is bad. And we felt that it was much more of a gray area in between that needed to be explored. Yeah, I, I think in one sense, it was very quick for us to come up with the idea. But in another sense, it almost been building for years through all our different conversations and collaborations. And um, it was almost like this working relationship that it built that then meant it was actually quite quite like quick and fun it was it was really fun to respond to this question um like at no point were we sort of agonizing like what should we do it about it just kind of it flowed really well um and I think the whole time we were developing this idea um we weren't we, we almost weren't really thinking about the pavilion we were thinking about it as this idea of something we wanted to research and pursue further whatever happened whether we won the project or not 
Um, and I think that in a sense was why it was so interesting and fun to work on and still is because it's we sort of found this thing that we were both really interested in and we're approaching from different angles but wanting to change in a similar way. Amazing. Can you take us back to the actual idea of um, applying, you know, for, for the curator role? Because that's always a thing. Like, you know, we see these open calls and especially when they come from the British Council. You know, I've done it myself where I've assumed, Anna, somebody else so academic or somebody established will get that. And I almost talked myself out of applying. How was that for you? I think it was, I think we were definitely very similar in that we probably like never expected to win it and we're almost just doing it as a way to allow us to research this idea further in the competition process I think what really helped was having the other one there so I think we both really believe in the other person more than that person believes in themselves kind of thing and and that really really helps to have someone who um sort of helps you with any self-doubt and um I think we both kind of really respect one another um in that kind of way which which really really helped um but yeah I, I think like manager said like we went to Venice and we, we were walking around all the pavilions and we've both been to Venice so many times before to see the Biennale and absolutely love it um and we're just sort of joking to one another wouldn't it be great to one day <laughs> curate the British Pavilion and then it just so happened that we saw the open call a few weeks later and we're kind of like why not like I think we both felt like we were up for a bit of a challenge um, as to where we were in our lives. Um, and it just felt like a good opportunity to make us um, develop these ideas. But I do look back and I, I think it was quite strange that we went through the whole process being like, this is our test for when we, when we apply properly. Because we just sort of thought we're, we're not established or good enough to get it this time. So we'll just test it out this time. Um, and we went through, Sorry. As I say, we went through the whole process just kind of thinking, we'll take this body of research somewhere else for when we don't get it. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few people who, we've know, who we know who've gotten it in the past or um, have been shortlisted and um, they've applied several times. And so we really thought that this was, like, as Maddie said, the first of many. But um, I think the whole, the whole process, even until today, has been a kind of roller coaster. And I think in the, for the first stage especially, we were just kind of building this team and getting excited about the idea and trying to think about post-competition, what would we do with it next? But then once we got shortlisted, it became really real. And going to the interview um, and, and like, I guess seeing that it could become a reality made us really, really want to get it. So, um, I, I mean, neither of us ever expected we would even at that stage. So I think the night before they were supposed to notify the winner, we were both quite upset and trying to cheer each other up, saying that there will be other opportunities in the future. And um, I think it's proof that you should always enter the competition because it's so much of it is the element of chance. Like we were really lucky it was the right topic with the right jury um, because the panel, um, there were lots of people that really cared about this topic and were quite passionate about it. And um, yeah, we, we were very fortunate, I guess. So. Yeah, I think that's definitely something we keep telling people, like just go for it. Like don't let your own self-doubt stop you from going for something. And um, I don't, yeah, don't, yeah, don't let yourself stop you from doing something. Yeah, it is often ourselves that's stopping us, isn't it? You know, all this sort of invisible jury we kind of set up, let alone the actual one, you know, behind the application process. That's amazing. And, and like we were saying before, like you almost think unless you haven't done something before, it means you can't do it. But 
but then when would you have ever curated the British Pavilion before? Like, you know, so it's kind of, I I do think often women are worse than men at like this kind of self-doubt. And um, I think it's something we need to encourage each other almost to, to just go for it and get over. Brilliant. I think that's brilliant advice for our listeners. Everybody should just go for it. Um, let's talk about the development of the uh, project then. So obviously you had, well, initially you had what, like about nine months to develop it or so. Uh, yeah, we would have had, I think we would have had just a little bit over a year um, before the actual Biennale was supposed to happen. And um, I think uh, the concept we pitched for the competition is still very much the same. I guess what we refined over the, the year was the kind of what would actually be the contents of the pavilion. So the design of the spaces and how to bring that concept to life. And so um, actually we had to do a lot of the, the work in advance when applying for the competition. So we picked the, the team of designers that we wanted to work with um, and we kind of assigned each of them one of the rooms which were exploring different types of privatized public spaces. And then we've kind of spent the last year working with each of them to, to kind of develop their designs. And um, it's been a really great process and we're really lucky to have such an amazing team. And each of the, the, the kind of rooms is going to be a kind of journey through a typical UK town and city and um, taking you through privatized public spaces that you know and love within the UK, like the pub and the garden square at the high street, um, a space for teenagers, but also we have kind of two rooms that are ministries that are kind of suggesting ways in which we should be rethinking um, the management and ownership of land as well as our data. So looking at tangible and intangible assets. And we wanted to have that there to also kind of serve as a provocation of, you know, where do we pitch change? Should it be as architects, do we only get involved in the design of space or can we also be involved in the design of policy? And I think in terms of the exhibition itself, we were quite keen from the outset to make it something very spatial that people experience um, rather than just looking at text and images and research and walls, like really creating these kind of provocations of, of what these spaces can become um, and being able to do that back in the UK as well. Um, and that really sort of guided our, our process and our briefs. And I think the team have been absolutely amazing at responding to that and um, evolving these ideas into ways we never would have imagined from the outset. Um, and, you know, it's been challenging at times with a, a limited budget and things like that, but that's sort of also like led to really interesting kind of decisions and, and things being made um, within the project. So, um, yeah, it's been a really fun and, and exciting experience and we're really looking forward to being able to show it to everyone um, once Venice opens. <laughs> You, you mentioned privatised public spaces, which is a lot, of, obviously, you know, the core of this um, proposal. Can you elaborate on more of what that means precisely in terms of, like, what these spaces are? Because I know they're not always, like, cordoned off or, you know, it's not necessarily like a, a, a fenced off sort of spaces, you know, that we move through private land even when we don't know it, like walking across a car park to take a shortcut and things. Yeah, so it's um, any space in the city that's privately owned but publicly accessible. So the most obvious ones that people often think of are what's often known as POPs, which are these kind of new paved squares in, in developments. And often what you find is you don't, you don't even know you're on private land often and you don't know you're breaking any rules until you break them. Um, and I think that's what we're quite interested in, like this kind of weird 
ominous, not knowing um, what the rules are and who owns the land you're on. So, for example, with the Occupy protests a few years ago at Paternoster Square, um, you had all these protesters in Paternoster Square who didn't realise necessarily it was privately owned and it turned out protesting was against the rules on that bit of land, so they got ushered on. And that makes you start to realise actually uh, the importance of these spaces being regulated and having having consistent rules that allow people to act like the general public. Um, and I think that's sort of where our, our interest began. But then sort of looking further beyond that, um, you start to look at things like the pub, which, you know, was the original public house, people opening up their living rooms uh, to the public. Um, garden squares, um, which often are privately owned, well, they are privately owned, but sometimes they allow the public in, sometimes they don't. Um, I don't know if you want to add any, Manaji. Yeah, I guess um, the timeliness of us doing this project um, has been great in that the Mayor of London has putting together a kind of public London charter as part of the London plan. And so we've been fortunate enough to be um, involved in some of the discussions because it's the first attempt to kind of uh, create some sort of legislation for owners, users and managers of privatised public space. Because the main issue, as you outlined, Geeta, originally was um, that you can often be on private land and not know it because it's public. And it's only, as Maddie said, when you break the rules that you suddenly find out um, who owns this land. And so it's entirely unregulated. And this is a really good move towards that. And so um, the Greater London Authority have actually contributed to our exhibition catalogue with, um, I guess, an insight into some of the work they've been doing on that. Um, and I think what we've really advocated for through the project is that the average citizen or person inhabitants should have kind of more uh, like control over like how their land is owned or used or accessed and the whole project um, from basically how we've designed it as an immersive space so that everyone can access and and understand it to um, really how we want to understand privatized public space through how people use it has been so the whole project's been designed with that in mind to think about how everyone can become part of this conversation around the future of their public spaces, because we think that that will really improve cities, especially now kind of in a time of COVID where a lot of these spaces like the pub and the high street are under threat. And, um, and they have been for a while, but um, this current situation has highlighted maybe inequalities within society even more. And so it feels kind of even more urgent that these spaces are looked after and rethought to ensure that they last in the future. I was just going to say, I think once you start to think about privatised public space, become aware of it, you start to realise how much of the city is privately owned and not just the city, but also the countryside. Um, I, I was just down in Dorset last week and you're walking along the beach and every now and again, the beach becomes privately owned and you, you might still be able to walk through it, but you, you, there are all these signs making you aware you can't stop <laughs> in it. Um, and I think what we're really interested in is in making places more equitable and accessible to everyone. And uh, we're not saying places can't necessarily be privately owned, but if they are, they should be open to everyone to use on an equal basis and playing field, which is where we think the GLA's public space charter is really interesting. So you mentioned the GLA, but I know your work actually affects all across this, you know, about all across the UK. Can you talk about some of the more regional projects you've done? So one of our team members, Studio Polpo, is based in Sheffield. 
And they've been doing really interesting research on the high street where they kind of occupy spaces that are left vacant and do interesting activities to activate those spaces and the community around them. So they've been involved in this food hall project that looks at kind of non-monetary forms of exchange. So why is the high street so dependent on retail when actually there could be spaces for knowledge exchange or skills exchange? And a lot of their research in Sheffield is actually going to be um, transformed or manifested in the pavilion in a kind of room that looks at the high street and that will really look at um, kind of a, an economy based around something more than money. So when you go for a haircut or when you buy a cup of coffee, like what are you really paying for? Are you paying for a conversation or a place to shelter from the rain, which feels apt on a day like today where it's pouring? Um, so I think they're trying to really kind of expand what these networks really mean to our society and what are the ways we, we as architects can intervene to actually preserve them, improve them and get them to better serve the people who live there. Yeah, it's, it's a really great point because we are, well, from the beginning and the outset, we've been really aware of how different prioritised public spaces within London versus other cities versus in a rural context. Um, and we, we just, from the outset, didn't want the pavilion to become too London-centric. Um, we wanted to be a British pavilion addressing problems from across the UK and proposing ideas of, of, for the whole of the UK in different ways. Um, and that's why we chose rooms such as the pub, because the pub is very different in a rural context as, as it is in a city context and what it means to the local community and how it functions. Um, and I, I think the way we chose the different spaces almost was to try and um, ensure that it, it engaged with different parts of, of the UK in different ways. And how many designers are you working with? We're working with five different practices. Um, so there's six rooms in the pavilion and uh, Maddie and I, through our practice Unseen Architecture, are doing the central room, which is the garden square, which picks up on the kind of title of the whole project, which is the garden of privatized delights. But then as you kind of walk through the pavilion, the five other rooms are designed by five different practices. And each of them have been kind of working with a theme related to the room that they're they're designing, um, but we wanted the pavilion to be this platform to unify different research on the topic, because we find that as a topic, privatized public space has been frequently problematized, but nothing's really been done to address its root causes. And we want each of the spaces to showcase the kind of issues that those spaces face currently, but also contain proposals for how they could be adapted and used in the future. So the, each room will have a bit of both in how you experience it. So those practices are the decorators who are looking at the pub, uh, Studio Polpo, um, who Marjorie just spoke about, who um, are looking at the high street, uh, VPPR, who are looking at Play Without Grounds, so how there's just nowhere in the city for teenagers anymore, um, and then the two ministries, um, which are being um, designed by uh, Built Works and Public Works. And how has the delay in the Biennale affected all of this i mean back in when was it like february march the biennale was scheduled to open in may and then they made the announcement to delay the opening to august and then they made the announcement to actually just cancel it for 2020 and move everything along a year to start 2021 how has it been managing this delay you know with, with all these teams and then even <laughs> I think I think like the rest of 2020 it's just been postponed to 2021 <laughs> um, I mean obviously it's been a very surreal um, few months and it's had its um, 
you know, quirks. Um, but I think everyone's probably working through similar issues on, on whatever they're working on. Um, I think we feel very lucky that it's still going to go ahead. Um, um, yeah, I mean, we had a very surreal experience, I think, where everything had sort of started to be fabricated. Um, and so we started to see things coming to life and then, then the lockdown happened. Um, but I think we definitely, you know, are aware it could have been so much worse. And also I think there's nothing like a global health crisis to put everything in perspective. Um, and it's the past few months have brought to the forefront of the conversation a lot of the ideas and topics we've been exploring, um, which we're looking at, looking forward to, um, sort of continuing to engage with um, in this much more prominent way um, over the next few months. So I think having the space to be able to do that over the next few months is, is really crucial to us rather than it being forced upon us. Yeah, I think the first postponement in March came at a point when we were sort of sprinting towards the finish line. So um, our, we, our shipping deadline was around the corner and we everything was kind of test assembled at a kind of warehouse um, where our fabricators were based. And, um, and we were seeing it for the last time before it got packaged up to be sent to Venice. And it was so surreal because literally from one day to the next, we we went to see it for the last time before it got put in storage because it wasn't going to get shipped because then the Biennale got postponed. And um, at that point, we were really keen that it happened as soon as possible. But then um, as the months went by, we were getting more and more anxious as we watched COVID unfold about how responsible it would be to, to have the Biennale in August and how possible it would be for people to even come out and visit it and even install it safely. So it definitely felt like the best decision. I mean, I didn't think we were so relieved when they announced that they were postponing it to 2021 because it feels like hopefully this way everyone can safely enjoy it. And it's an, it's an exhibition in the way we've designed it that really needs to be kind of occupied and inhabited. So we're still hoping for the best that it'll go to plan next year. And, um, and as Maddie said, like having this extra time while a lot of our, our designs are kind of built, it's giving us a bit more time to reflect on on what more we can do to, to kind of infuse the conversation with all of these nuances that have arisen as a result of COVID. And we've been trying to also be part of different conversations, um, both kind of public program wise, but also um, more private conversations about like what can be done to kind of save some of these spaces or support them um, in different ways. That's so interesting because I would have thought that you would have had more time for development. It hadn't occurred to me, of course, you were up against your shipping deadline anyway. So what else have you got coming up for the rest of this year ahead of next year's Biennale? I mean, you're saying you're having more conversations. Are you doing any talks or is there any like, I don't know, previewy things going on? We've been doing a lot of, I think, over the summer as a way to kind of test the, the messaging or the ideas behind the pavilion. Um, we tried to do quite a lot of talks to also gauge the audience's opinion and, and gather ideas that other people have from different contexts on the topic, which has been great. Um, and we've been trying to do like conversations like this that get us to think about the project in different ways and also the process behind it, because I think we don't have enough distance really to think about what, what's actually happened. Um, but yeah, we've, I think what's been really exciting as well is that a lot of universities have asked us to teach seminars and run workshops around this topic with their students. And that's been a really nice way to kind of almost return to how this whole thing began. So to test the ideas with um, students that are actually exploring this through their kind of year long design projects. And so we're hoping to do a few more of those in the months to come. Yeah, I think the way that people 
our engaging of public space like it's changed over the past few months and it's impossible to predict what will happen um, over the next few months and following years but um, it feels like a really important and exciting moment to be engaged in these discussions and something we found really important from the beginning of the project is to engage with different stakeholders from completely different walks of life, different backgrounds. And that's something we're continuing to do. So we're talking to people from the public sector in, in terms of policy making, uh, developers in terms of like, you know, how do they actually open up their privatised public space in different ways to allow people in, um, the local community groups, students. And I think these are the conversations we want to make sure we're continuing to engage in, but also actually be really proactive um, in allowing these spaces to open up um, in different ways and in more equitable and accessible ways. And now feels like a really exciting turning point in that conversation. So I think we're just trying to ensure that we keep up the momentum um, to ensure that things do change. Brilliant. Manija, Maddie, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast. Thank you for having us, and we hope we'll see you and lots of listeners in Venice next year. Definitely see me in Venice. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. It's been really, really great. Yeah. The Curator Salon hopes you enjoyed this production.